Welcome to One True Podcast. My name is Mark Chirino, and my producer is Michael Von Cannon. In his memoir, A Movable Feast, Ernest Hemingway wrote, All you have to do is write one true sentence, write the truest sentence that you know. So finally, I would write one true sentence and then go on from there. In that same spirit of honesty, creativity, and curiosity, One True Podcast explores all things related to Ernest Hemingway, his what, his life, his work, and his world. Today's show revisits our feature that is capturing the imagination of the Hemingway cosmos, in which we take Hemingway at his own premise. We ask our guest a very simple question, her choice for Hemingway's one true sentence and why, and then, as Hemingway instructs, go on from there. We are privileged today to be joined by Paula McLean. Paula McLean is the author of, in addition to collections of poetry and a memoir, the best-selling novels, The Paris Wife, Circling the Sun, and Love and Ruin. The Paris Wife and Love and Ruin are, of course, fictional depictions of Hemingway's first and third wives, respectively. So she is a perfect guest to discuss Hemingway and his writing with us. We are honored to have her. Thank you so much for joining us, Paula. It's really my pleasure, Mark. Thank you so much. And I, you know, I have to call you on the, um, that you almost uh, did a Freudian slip and said his wife, right? Hemingway's wife. That, I thought that was completely adorable and I had to mention it. And it's perfect for this particular episode. And Michael has to leave that in. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to. <laughs> Paula, what is your one true sentence and why? So the one true sentence that I selected for my conversation with you today is also from A Movable Feast. Um, and it's from some the last paragraph, in fact, in the, um, uh, in the book. And it is, there is never any ending to Paris and the memory of each person who has lived in it differs from that of any other. There is never any ending to Paris, which I often write in people's books when they come to my signing line when I'm doing an event for the Paris wife. There is never any ending to Paris. So that's my choice. So what strikes you about that sentence to end a memoir or to end a passage by saying that there is no ending? That must be I mean, that's such a provocative move by Hemingway. It is. It absolutely is. And I think, you know, it's it's crucial to understand that he was working on this memoir at the end of his life. It's about the beginning of his literary apprenticeship, the way he was building himself as a writer, which, of course, much of that happened in Paris um, as a young man, as a very young man. He moved to Paris when he was 21 years old in 1921. Um but, but he's re-immersing himself in these memories now that he is the most famous living writer in the world. And that's key. Also, I think it's crucial to understand that in becoming the most you know, well-known writer in the world, he's also lost his privacy He's in old age. He's lost much of his memory. He can't sleep anymore. He has nervous troubles. He's had electric shock therapy. You know, he's had major depressive episodes. He's had two plane crashes. You know, he's he's battered by life. He's um, carrying all these memories with him, but then choosing to revisit 
Paris as a wellspring of sorts. And I find this last paragraph as incredibly optimistic and generous and tender and loving as he revisits Paris as a kind of Eden um, with great with great love and unapologetic idealism. One of the things I'm getting from that sentence, and Hemingway seems to stress a lot in A Movable Feast and elsewhere, is just because this is my memory doesn't mean it's exactly what happened or it's exactly how somebody else would describe it. Mm. So as somebody who wrote, you wrote memoirs yourself, where is the line between compelling narrative and strict militant fidelity to what happened? No, absolutely. There can't be strict militant fidelity to what happens because nobody knows what happens, even if you're in the moment, right? Because we're always projecting and transposing and disfiguring people. There is no, there is no, (laughs) there is no truth. And I don't know if you've ever read when I was researching the Paris wife, I was, I had um, applied to be a scholar and to go visit um, the Hemingway Holdings at the the archives at the John F. Kennedy Memorial Library. And so I read the introduction to A Movable Feast, his handwritten introduction, which he wrote obsessively over and over and over again, crossing things out and and sort of this idea, you know, um, if the reader chooses, you know, he can take this, these things as fact. or, or, or fiction. I mean, I think he struggled himself with the, um, the blurring of those lines and also with this thing that he was doing, not just to himself, but to the subject in each of those vignettes, other writers, painters, Gertrude Stein, Ford Maddox Ford, um, F. Scott Fitzgerald, his, his first wife, that he's both exposing them and disguising them simultaneously in the book. So this is something that you've also particularly faced both with the memoirs that I mentioned, but also by writing historical fiction. Yes, because those lines blur all the blur all the time. And, and so I do think- they blur in the same way or is it a different? They blur uh, in different ways. They yeah. blur in absolutely different ways. And I think, what Hemingway was trying to get at, if I can be so bold, and or certainly what I'm always trying to get at is the emotional truth of a moment and not the physical right. truth of a moment, the actual truth as if someone could determine that. Um, I think, too, there is a kind of what I was talking about before. If Paris is an Eden it's a source of myth. It is a source, right? It's the wellspring. That's why there is never any end to it. You can return to it again and again. You know, he says at another moment, that was the end of the first part of Paris, right? right? right. That was the end of the, just the first part of Paris. And there's a moment, in fact, it might be even the same moment from the one true sentence quote, you know, he's up in his rooftop garret. He's burning his little sticks. He's eating his mandarins. You know, later he'll go walking in the Luxembourg garden with a hole in his shoe and his shabby haircut and, you know, all of that. Right. And um, he's talking about, you know, being up in Michigan in his head, transplanting himself so perfectly that, in fact, he's experiencing the weather 
in his mind and in his in his physical body. Um, and, you know, he talks about that often in his writing, his ability to go away, his ability to go away in his own head and transplant himself back in that place. So for the Hemingway who was up in his rooftop garret in Paris, Michigan, up in Michigan, that is the place that is the source. That's the wellspring right. and that is Eden. There is never any end to those places either. Kent State University Press is delighted to announce a new book by Robert K. Elder, Hemingway in Comics, a fascinating and handsomely illustrated look at the various depictions of Hemingway in comics and graphic novels. Also, check out Kent State University Press's Teaching Hemingway series, edited by former guest Mark P. Ott, for its inventive and innovative approaches to Hemingway's greatest work. Go to kentstateuniversitypress.com or your favorite bookseller. And in your own writing experience, isn't it true that you were never in Paris before you wrote the Paris <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, that's absolutely right. My the, the impetus for writing The Paris Wife was me discovering a movable feast and becoming completely obsessed with the young Hemingway and um, Hadley Richardson and and just this idea of how um, Hemingway in a movable feast doesn't expose himself to the degree that he exposes others. And I, so I had all these questions about what their lives were like. And so I went looking for them. And when I had the idea, I knew it was, um, I just knew it was going to change me, but I, uh, I was dead broke. I had three kids. I had three part-time teaching jobs. I had a, you know, $600 in my savings account. I could not afford to go to Paris. Um, so I didn't, I read my way there. So how would your novel have been different had you walked the streets of Paris and soaked it up? Are, are you, in retrospect, you're happy you didn't? Or would Honestly, it have enhanced? Mark, I think it would have been an incredible problem. I think I would have been really distracted by the physical Paris. Um, there was something that was so magnetic and um profound about having to go there in my mind. I mean, obsessing, obsessing about every last detail, reading everything, reading all of Hemingway, steeping myself as a way to, it was a magic carpet. It was a way to put myself there, reading Stein, reading Ezra Pound, um, reading everything I could possibly find, all the letters, you know, there was, and, and Hemingway's letters to Hadley and Hearst to him and and there was just this quality of um, going down a rabbit hole, you know, and coming out again. In you can't go to 1920s Paris unless yeah, you're right. in that Woody Allen movie, right? <laughs> right. So I want to go back actually to to what we were talking about a little bit earlier. So does there come a point where you absorb all of this information and then you let it go because there's the object the the objective part of learning about Hemingway, but then there's the subjective part, which is creating a character, which is yours. So it's your, it's your Hemingway and your Hadley, right? Exactly. Exactly. And to have the faith and the trust that whatever it is that I'm building, the scaffolding will be there when I launch out into imagination. And the imaginative part is, is so crucial. 
I mean, you know, people ask me, well, why didn't you write a biography? Well, because I'm a novelist, you know, and so much has been said in biography. What I wanted to add, what was what you couldn't know from reading a biography to project myself emotionally into that heart space, the heart and minds, what they said to each other in the dark, what they fought about, right. um, all, all of that, the unknowable thing, you know, the heart of another is a dark forest. As you, as you would do with a fictional character. Exactly. Of, of your own creation. So when a, so Paula, when a Hemingway geek says they didn't, they didn't go West, they went East. You go, I don't care. Right. I, uh, <laughs> That's right. And you know, Hemingway geeks, and this is your audienceship. So I'm, I hope I'm yes. not offending We're, anyone, but I, I love talking to Hemingway geeks and to be backed into a corner and being told like his socks were this, or, you know, what kind of onions he liked on his cheese sandwich. Exactly. But everybody really likes knowing what they know. Um, but we also love the mystery, right? We love the enigma. We love that we can't ever get to the bottom of him. It makes him catnip for readers and writers alike. It's why, of course, now I am. I mean, I'm, I, you know, I fell madly in love with him when I was working on The Paris Wife. And now I'm completely devoted to him in a way um, and owe a lot to him. My, you know, the last 10 years of my career, in fact. And you're only halfway through his wives. So, <laughs> so, Sorry, that was so loud. Yes, I'm only we, halfway through. We we still have a lot to look forward to. Actually, you know, you're in, in your novels about Hemingway and your uh, other historical novel, one of your focuses, it seems like one of the commonalities is that you enjoy chronicling strong women. And it seems like, the uh, Hemingway in the 21st century in, you know, Hemingway might've been canceled in the, uh, uh, you know, in the 21st century. So how, how do you square that with the, the women in Hemingway's life, the women that you're drawn to writing, but also the obvious uh, misgivings that modern contemporary readers have with Hemingway? Right. To me, I, I sort of carry them in the same crucible side by side because they require two different kinds of empathy, two different levels of empathy, first of all. You know, for instance, anytime a writer catapults themselves into the mind and heart of a character, be it imaginary or fact based, you know, there is an amalgamation that happens, right? You become them, they become you, those lines blur. I, you know, I surrendered myself to writing Hadley's story in her voice, quote, unquote, but I am as unlike Hadley as I could possibly be, really. I'm much more, I imagine, closer to Hemingway or, or Marty or, or something, but Gellhorn, I mean, um, so here's the thing that happens. I like strong women. Yeah, I, I really like writing a story where I'm trying to discover how a strong woman becomes herself and what she has to survive to become herself, right? So Hadley, for instance, has to survive the end of her marriage, the disastrous end of her marriage. And Martha Gellhorn, for instance, has to survive Heming her marriage to Hemingway if she's going to become herself as a as a jour the journalist she's meant to be, what her destiny is. But simultaneously, Mark, if this makes any sense to you, I 100% surrendered <laughs> to um, 
to delving into the mind as much as I could and, and heart and emotional experience of Hemingway, kind of no holds barred. I, I don't, I would, you know, argue that my portraiture of him is as compassionate as is out there. And, and I'm not making it up. I mean, that is, it is true. And so when I go into talk to book clubs, for instance, or I go do events, I often make a joke how it's become my actual job to defend Ernest Hemingway to smart women everywhere. But all I can say is what I discovered about him and why he's so endlessly fascinating to me is the humanity. You know, I only sought to make him more human to readers and to myself and to bring him closer, right? And so that's all I say to people, right? And um, yeah. And, and that's very interesting. And you're also dealing with a different Hemingway in, Hemingway was different with his first wife than with his third wife. So not only are not only are the women different, but Hemingway himself was different in those. Absolutely, I say that often. I say, you know, I met Hemingway the way Hadley did through her eyes at a party yeah. in Chicago in 1920, and he wasn't himself yet, and he was incredibly. And she saw all of this: his insecurity, his self doubt, his romanticism, his sensitivity. It's not that she was blind to those things; she right. took those things in stride. And so, when somebody hurt his feelings, or he would lash out if she understood where it was coming from because they were kid you know they they were kids together like he couldn't put anything over on her in that way yeah yeah well so maybe as we're winding down i wanted to ask you so we're here obviously in the one true sentence uh construct and does that one true sentence that Hemingway prescribes in a movable feast. Does that speak to you at all as a writer uh, with your own work, composing just one sentence at a time and looking for the truth in that one sentence? I would say yes. And um, for me, it might differ slightly. So let's say Hemingway was transplanting himself in his rooftop garret you know, writing the Nick Adams stories, like waiting for that trout to float up from the bottom of the pool. Because in a way, one true sentence is like that, cutting through all the noise. And it's something really that comes from the depths of your subconscious when you're quiet enough, when you still your mind, when you um, are able to, whatever, go away, as he said, transport yourself to that place where art comes from inspiration. We don't really know what it is. So yes, I'm always waiting for that too. Um, and living for that, I think if he had one true love and one true devotion, it was to his work and he surrendered entirely to that. But I would also say in, in closing, Mark, that I also, this other sentence about there never being any end to Paris, I also identify with that and with the you know, part of the poignancy of the book is the way he's looking back through time and realizing what he had and what he lost and that we always have to lose Eden. You know, we always have to lose our first loves and our relationship to whatever the purity at the beginning, because we can't unknow what we know. And even the poverty, the, the way he idealizes being hungry, having the hole in his shoe, burning sticks in his you know, little brazier up in his, all of that, the perfection of that can only be perfect because 
it's lost. Paula, could you repeat the one true sentence for us? I'd be happy. There is never any ending to Paris, and the memory of each person who has lived in it differs from that of any other. Paula McLean, what a pleasure it was to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us on One True Podcast. Absolutely, Mark. Thanks for having me. And thanks to you all for listening in. This episode is available on HemingwaySociety.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at One True Pod. That's the number One True Pod. Email us at One True Pod at gmail.com or leave us a message at 321 321- 209-1345. Our show is a production of the Hemingway Society and is supported by the University of Evansville and Florida Gulf Coast University. Join us next time as we continue exploring Hemingway, his work, and his world. Until then, I'm Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon, and this is One True Podcast. <laughs> Sono